Okay, so this is our continuing reading of individuation in the light of notions of form and information. We're just towards the end of part one of the book on uh, physical individuation, uh, chapter three. Uh, I forget which subsection, but we're starting at the top of page 153 of the translation. So we're, we're still in quantum physics mode. And this last this subsection that we, we just started on last time is specifically about the double solution theory of quantum mechanics. So um, if you remember, this was the theory that Louis de Bray proposed and, uh, and then abandoned and then went back to in the 50s. And it's characterized by the positing of two separate solutions to the wave function. Um, so there's the, the psi wave, which corresponds to the, the probability um, distribution uh, in, in standard interpretations of quantum physics. And then there's the U wave, which is a, a nonlinear uh, um, solution to the wave function, which um, uh, would have the particles as singular region specs of reality on this interpretation. So they, they both have physical significance. There, there's a, a, a real um, wave, a, a real physical wave, and, and not just um, a, a wave in probability, uh, like in the standard interpretation. And so we're going to look at, I guess, the ontological consequences of this theory um, in this section. So we, we just started it last time. Uh, the, the beginning of the section sets out the, the contrast between the probabilistic or indeterministic interpretation of quantum physics and the double solution theory, the, which is a deterministic one. And uh, Simon Dahl has argued, uh, this is the last bit we saw, he, he has argued that the indeterministic interpretation of quantum physics has uh, a conception of the individual, which is a, a substantialist conception. So it, it, still, it still posits uh, individual, physical individuals like uh, particles as having, um, as being sort of self-contained uh, substances. And it's the the reason that it ends up with this sort of um, epistemological um, dead end where we can only have knowledge of probabilities and we don't actually have a, a true knowledge of reality. Uh, the reason for that is because that notion of the physical individual is um, an impoverished one. It, and, and so uh, Simon Don argues that with the double solution theory, we can have a conception of the individual as always being uh, relative to a potential or something that is not individual. So there's always, the individual is always accompanied by something not individual. And, uh, and, and so this is what he, the sort of lesson he wants to draw from the double solution theory. Okay, so let's get into uh, today's reading from page 153. I'll start, uh, I think this is another long paragraph. Louis de Bray argues that his, this realism requires a return to the Cartesian representations of space and time where everything is formed by figure and movement. Several reservations should be made about this point. Descartes indeed refuses to consider action at a distance to be possible, and he only acknowledges action through contact. An individual must be present in a point in order for it to act there. The Cartesian representation of individuation precisely identifies the individual with its geometrical limits characterized by its figure. On the contrary, it seems that the conception which considers the individual as the singularity of a wave and which consequently requires a field does not accept the Cartesian representation of individuation, even if it accepts its conception of determinism. To recall Bachelard's expression, 
there is a non-Cartesian epistemology, not in the sense of in, not in the sense of determinism or indeterminism, but in the sense of what concerns the mode of action of one individual on another, whether through contact or the intermediary of a field, what Bachelard calls electrism. However, it would actually be because probabilistic physics begins by way of an initial Cartesian definition of individuation that it culminates in indeterminism. And this initial definition of individuation forms the basic postulate of every physical theory. For Descartes, relation is not considered as part of the individual, does not express the individual, and does not transform the individual. Relation is accidental with respect to substance. The indeterministic theory conserves this definition of the individual, at least implicitly, because this theory calculates the probabilities of presence at a specific point without accounting for the individual that must be present there. This same theory of indeterminism is nothing but a determinism that postulates that hidden parameters do not exist. But what is precisely identical in this determinism and indeterminism is determination, which is always an event for the individual and not a relational operation. For both, determination is a rapport and not a relation, a veritable relational act. This is why we are better off not affirming too much the possibility of a return to the Cartesian conception of space and time. As Louis de Bray has said many times, Einstein's system is much better suited to this conception of individuation than any other, including that of Descartes. A cor corpuscle that can be represented as a singularity of a field is not conceivable in Cartesian geometrism, insofar, uh, insofar as a singularity cannot be introduced into this space qua race extensa, extended substance, without excessively modifying Cartesian geometry and mechanics. Um, so here we have, um, this idea introduced by Debray that um, um, that we have to return to a, a Cartesian conception of what physics does um, and and what physical explanations do, um, which would be in terms of figure and movement. So everything is supposed to be explained through figure and movement. Um, uh, and Simon Don. Um, uh, argues that this conception is is not um, is not uh, um, is not a good interpretation of uh, the double solution theory, or not a good way of drawing the ontological lessons from the double solution theory. Um, so be, it's because uh, in uh, Descartes' physics, the the individual um, is not uh, is not related uh, or isn't subject to a relation in the strong ontological sense that Simon Don uses the term. Uh, so that an, an individual can um, have a rapport with another individual, but that's always uh, something like an accident. It it's, uh, doesn't affect the, uh, the substance of that individual in itself. Um, and uh, uh, the notion of substance is precisely defined as, as um, having to do with the self uh, self subsistence or the the isolated nature of that uh, entity so uh, under the Cartesian conception there's there's no role for relation as uh, having the status of being and so uh, Simon Don is arguing that it's precisely this conception of the individual as substance that um, that lies behind the the indeterministic theory or the probabilistic interpretation of quantum physics. Uh, so, and uh, and so, 
if we want to uh, overcome that indeterminism like deployed does, then we can't rely on this Cartesian conception of the individual. And so we need a, a different conception of, of uh, um, space and time and what physical explanation consists in. Right. <clears throat> right. So I think we can uh, go on to the next page if someone else would like to read. Um, I can read. In the end, we could ask ourselves whether or not instead of being capable of entering into the framework of an indeterministic physics or that of deterministic physics, we should consider the theory of singularities as the foundation for a new representation of the real that encompasses these two as particular cases, and that should be called the theory of transductive time or the theory of phases of being. This definition of a new manner of thinking becoming, which calls for determinism and indeterminism as borderline cases, applies to other domains of reality than that of elementary corpuscles. This is why we have been able to obtain the diffraction of bundles of molecules by crystalline surfaces. Stern, in 1932, obtained the diffraction of molecular rays of hydrogen helium by verifying Louis de Broglie's relation between the speed and the wavelength. Uh, lambda equals H over M uh, V. I think that's V and not new. Within a margin of 1%. However, it seems difficult to generalize this method by applying it to all orders of magnitude without carrying out a recasting of what could be called the topology and chronology of the physical axiomatic, i.e. without rethinking each time the problem of the individuation of the ensemble in which the phenomenon develops. In this sense, two questions can be posed. What are the limits of the usage of the, no the notion of the photon as, an, as a physical individual? What can we consider as the real source of light in the cases where the continuous wave characteristic of light is involved in producing a phenomenon? In these two cases, it seems that the physical system must be considered in its totality. Let's suppose that a magnetic field, for example, exists and is constant. We can speak of the field's existence and measure its intensity at a determined point, just as we can define its direction. Let's now suppose that what produced this field, for example, a current in a solenoid, stops. The solenoid, I guess, is just a, a, a magnetic coil that produces an electromagnetic field. Uh, the field will also stop, not abruptly and simultaneously in all points, but according to a perturbation that extends starting from the field's origin, the solenoid, with the speed of an electromagnetic wave. Can we consider this propagating perturbation as a photon, or at the very least, as a grain of energy? If it were a question of an alternating magnetic field, this point of view would be normal. Um, and it would be possible to define a frequency and a wavelength characterizing the presence of this alternating magnetic field. Would it not then be necessary to characterize the presence of the magnetic field, which is continuous in each point, as a potential that is a relation between the solenoid and the bodies capable of transforming these variations of the magnetic field in a current, for example? Then it could be supposed that the solenoid would disappear at the moment when the current that upholds the continuous magnetic field is cut. This perturbation would not propagate any less, as though the solenoid still existed. Then it will be able to produce the same effects of induction in other bodies. Here, this will no longer be a relation between physical individuals, since one of them will have disappeared the moment when the perturbation will arrive in a determined point far from its origin. So another... Uh Another interesting sort of like electromagnetic uh, example of this is with uh, radio antennas. Uh, long story short, like the way, uh, 
the length of a radio antenna determines the frequency that it's able to receive. But uh, modern antennas use uh, a really powerful electrical charge spinning around the antenna as an electromagnet, which either lengthens or shortens the antenna's actual electromagnetic signature so that short antennas can become longer to receive different frequencies outside of what their normal physical limitations uh, would allow them to. Um, so the, the sort of bigger, the big picture that he's developing here is um, th this new conception of uh, physical reality that uh, he's, he, he calls the transductive theory, the theory of transductive time or the theory of phases of being. And this is what he's um, sort of hinted at in the introduction and a few other places, the, the notion of um, uh, uh, a pre-individual being that uh, undergoes uh, a phase shift, but uh, we'll see more on how he develops that notion um, as we go along. And, and then he raises two problems uh, or two questions regarding, regarding the individuality of, uh, of a photon or um, whether or not we should regard um, a photon as, as a physical individual. And so the first question is, um, uh, well, he, he just sets it out as what are the limits of the usage of the notion of the photon as a physical individual? But the, the concern is that um, certain physical phenomena um, do suggest something like a photon concept, like we saw with the photoelectric effect. Um, but there are other physical phenomena where it becomes um, much harder to uh, to posit a, a photon as um, as uh, the source of this phenomenon, um, and that's what he's starting with is is that first problem, um, and then the second problem is um, has to do with the relation between uh, the source of light and the uh, um, receptor of light or the the object that is um, illuminated by that light beam. Um, and so he's going to, going to argue that we have to understand that uh, we have to understand this as a real relationship between the source of light, uh, or a real re relation, I should say, between the source of light and the object illuminated, rather than just um, uh, some sort of external um, uh, rapport. We have to, we have to understand um, light as a, a real physical relation between the the source of the light and the object illuminated. Um, but we'll see more on that as we go along. And so the, the first question about the, the nature of the photon, um, so the, the, the idea here is that, uh, or the example that he's introducing is a, a sort of um, almost like a, a negative photon, you could say. So you have this magnetic field uh, being produced by the solenoid. Um, and then if the solenoid stops um, or even disappears, uh, the, the magnetic field um, uh, disappears, but not um, all at once. It, uh, the, magnetic, the, the stopping of the magnetic field uh, propagates outwards from the, the solenoid that has, that has stopped or disappeared um, um, at the, the speed of an uh, electromagnetic wave or the speed of light. So it, it takes a certain amount of time for the, uh, that stopping of the field to propagate from its origin outwards to uh, the, the limits of the field. And, uh, and so this, um, 
this example uh, shows that this propagation um, of, of the stopping of the fields um, is uh, in one in one sense is a sort of negative photon um, because we have this uh, entity that is propagating um, at the speed of light. Um, but at the same time, we can't regard this as a real physical relation in the case where, for example, the solenoid disappears because the the one one of the terms of the relation doesn't exist anymore. Um, what this shows is that, uh, in general, we shouldn't regard this um, cutting of the field as uh, an instance of a, a, a real physical individuation or a real physical relation. So that's the, the sort of uh, purpose of this example. And, and he goes on to develop further forms in the next bit. OK, so let's, uh, let's go on. Um, if someone else would like to read the next page or so. In the same way, it seems quite difficult to give the individuality of the photon to the modifications of an unspecified electromagnetic field. From 10-kilometer radioelectric waves, international and submarine telegraphy, to the most penetrating gamma rays, a formulaic analogy and a veritable continuity in both the modes of production and the physical properties tie together all electromagnetic relations. However, the granular nature of these radiations is quite apparent for short wavelengths, but it becomes extremely unclear for large wavelengths, and if we wanted, this could tend toward an infinite wavelength corresponding to a null frequency without thereby nullifying the reality of the electrical field and the magnetic field. A perturbation that would be produced in these fields would propagate at the speed of light, but if no perturbation were produced, then nothing would propagate and yet fields continue to exist, since they can be measured as continuous fields. Should the continuous field be distinguished from the perturbation that could propagate if it appears, the continuity of the field in each point can also be interpreted as an information indicating that the source still existed at a determined instant. Since the field is real, it would be necessary to suppose as real an infinite wavelength that would correspond to this null frequency. But then the individuality of the grain of energy loses its signification, loses its signification outside the physical length or the physical beings that radiate or receive this energy. Therefore, it still seems that a definition of physical individuality is to be specified. Perhaps we shouldn't speak of the individuality of the particle of energy like the individuality of the particle of matter. There is a source of the photon and of the electromagnetic perturbation. The conception of space would be contested. It is doubtful that the Cartesian conception can be suitable without being completed. Let us ultimately note that a quantitative formalism does not suffice to resolve this difficulty of relation between space and time. The cessation of a magnetic field is not identical to the establishment of a magnetic field. Even if the effects of induction that the two variations of flux can provoke in a circuit, both at the end and at the start, are equal, but for the current sense, the presence of the constant magnetic field corresponds to a possibility of energy exchange between, for example, the solenoid that creates it and a circuit that is made to turn at a certain distance in such a way as to penetrate one of its sides with a constantly variable flux. When the field no longer exists, this possibility of energetic coupling no longer exists. 
the regime of the possible energy exchanges in the system has changed. It can be said that the system's topology has changed due to the disappearance of a constant field that nevertheless did not transport energy when no flux variation took place. Thus appears the reality of relations other than those of events between individuals, such as the theory of probabilities can make them seem. Finally, it would be quite important to know whether the new path down which Louis, Louis de Bro- I, I, how do you say his name? Sorry. De Broy, basically. Broy. Louis de Broy wants to see wavelength or wants to see wave mechanics tread suppress or conserves the indiscernibility of individuals with the same characteristics, for example, electrons. Still using probabilistic methods, according to Kahan and Kowal, we must postulate that the probability of finding two electrons in two defined states when they are in interaction is independent from their numbering. This indiscernibility of identical particles disrupts the exchange in the problem that seeks their respective energy levels. We would also wonder if Pauli's principle of exclusion is still valid. Um, there was one point of uh, translation that I think is a bit of an issue. Um, so it's right at the bottom of, or near the bottom of 155. Uh, it's, so it's, the sentence begins, let us ultimately note, uh, but it's a long sentence, um, uh, a couple lines down. So he says, even if the effects of induction that the two variations of flux can provoke in a circuit, both at the end and at the start, are equal but for the current sense, um, that bit, but for the current sense, should be, but for the direction of current, that makes more sense um, based on what the, the French says. So the idea here is that um, if you have a magnetic field that begins or or ends, uh, it will um, uh, produce a current in the uh, electrical circuit, but the, the direction of that current will be um, the opposite depending on which, whether it's the field beginning or ending. So this, uh, so this paragraph, he has introduced the argument that he has already mentioned uh, previously or, or already uh, formulated previously, namely that the, the photon concept applies um, more specifically or, or, or it has a better application um, in the case of um, short wavelength uh, electromagnetic radiation, so gamma rays or x-rays, for example, but in the case of long, uh, long wavelength, like radio waves, um, it, uh, it has a, a less clear uh, application. And, and so he points out that you can increase the wavelength indefinitely. Um, so the, uh, in the, the limit, you would, be, you would have um, an infinite wavelength or a, a, a zero frequency. Um, and, uh, and so this would, would correspond to um, no, uh, no propagation happening in the electromagnetic field, um, but there's still um, a physical reality of that electromagnetic field, even though there's no propagation happening because um, you have this uh, potential for propagation of um, an effect from, a, from the source of the mag- electromagnetic field. Um, uh, so there's this coupling between uh, the the source of the field and the uh, other um, bodies that are affected by the field. Um, 
So even if there's no uh, propagation, uh, there's still that coupling between them. Uh, and so this shows the, the physical reality of a, a relation, which is, doesn't, um, uh, which is not something actual, uh, it's, a, it's a potential, uh, but it's still real. Uh, so this is the um, in, in connection with the the second problem that he has introduced earlier about the relationship between um, the the light source or the source of electromagnetic radiation and the the body that is illuminated by that radiation. We have to go below the level of the um, actual relation and look at the the um, uh, potential relation or or the relationship at the level of the field, which is a, a potential. Um, concepts uh, and has this coupling nature. Uh, and then in that last paragraph, he, he brings up the, um, the indiscernibility of um, uh, the indiscernibility of particles having the same, um, the same states uh, in quantum physics. So um, sort of the, the short version of this is that um, if you have a system with say two electrons, um, and, and those electrons are in the same uh, states, then you get the same results whether you count like one electron as, as the first one and the other one as the second, or if you invert the, the order. Um, so there's, there's no physical difference between the two electrons. Uh, so even though the system, you, there, there's a physical um, reality to the fact that there are two electrons, um, there's, there doesn't seem to be any sort of physical reality to the the um, order uh, of the electrons, so which one is first and which one second, um, uh, you get the same results either way. Um, and so there's a sort of indiscernibility of, uh, of these particles because um, they, they have the same physical states and um, there's no uh, physical reality to the distinction between them, aside from the fact that there are the, sort of the pure numerical distinction, the fact that there are two of them. Um, but there's no physical properties that allow us to distinguish them from each other. And, uh, and so this, Simon Noah is raising this as a, a sort of problem for, for, um, for De Bruyne's notion uh, of, or, or his understanding of uh, wave mechanics and, and uh, quantum physics in general. So he wants to, he's just posing it as a question here, but um, the, the question is whether... Um, whether De Bruyne's account of quantum physics will um, will have the same indiscernibility effect, or um, is part of the deterministic account of quantum physics um, uh, something that would give um, individuality or, or or discernibility to um, individual electrons? Um, and so it's just raised as a question, but um, I'm not sure if he answers this later on. I don't think so. Okay, so we can go on to the next. Um, page or so, I'll start reading. A similar difficulty relative to the individuation of physical systems appears in the phenomenon of interferences. Whenever we consider an experiment of interferences in the non-localized field, we theorize this experiment, Young's slits contemplated as a means of producing not a diffraction, but two synchronous oscillators, Fresnel's mirror, Biel's lens, by saying that the light waves are emitted by two synchronous sources, which are synchronous because they receive their light from a single source and that they are themselves nothing but secondary sources arranged at equal distances from a primary source. Yet if we carefully consider the structure and activity of this primary source, we realize that it is possible to obtain a very clear phenomenon of interference with extinction practically complete in the dark bands, 
even if a primary source containing a very large number of atoms is used. A source, for example, constituted by a, a segment of tungsten filament 0.5 millimeters long and 0.2 millimeters in diameter necessarily contains several tens of thousands of atoms. Furthermore, we can take an extremely voluminous source, like a carbon arc lamp, in which light emanates from a gap and from a point whose active surface from which the column of luminous vapor stems is about a square centimeter for a strong intensity. However, since it has passed through a minuscule diaphragm that serves as the primary source, the light that emanates from this strong luminous area is capable of producing the phenomenon of interference as if it were produced by a very small segment of incandescent filament. Then is there a real synchronization between the molecules and the atoms of these large luminous surfaces? Every moment, a very large number of non-synchronized oscillators emit light. It would seem normal to consider the phenomenon as a result that, that conforms with the law of statistics. You would then have to suppose that the phenomenon of interference will be all the more unclear because there will be a greater number of non-synchronized oscillators. We mean by this not oscillators of different frequencies, but relative to an unspecified phase in order to constitute the primary source. And it does not seem that experimentation verifies this prediction. Yet given the order of magnitude of the sources utilized, even the smallest sources already contain a large number of elementary oscillators that do not seem to be able to be in phase. These oscillators cannot be in phase when they have different frequencies. However, the phenomenon is always produced even though only the central bands are distinct since the bands relative to each frequency are less superposed the, far the farther they are from the central band. What is the phase synchronization that can exist between waves emitted by oscillators of the same frequency? Does this synchronization arise from the unity of the system that contained them? Is there a coupling that is produced between these oscillators placed at a short distance from one another? But if a primary source is constituted by means of an optical apparatus that unifies the rays emitted by two distinct sources, would this phase synchronization remain? Or instead, is the phenomenon independent of any phase synchronization? It is perhaps noteworthy to link the study of light to that of the source which produces it. The photon's individuality cannot be considered absolutely independent from the oscillator that produces it or from the system from which this oscillator possibly belongs. Thus, all the oscillators included in the same energetic system would have a certain linkage between them that could make synchronization possible. And there would be not just a frequency synchronization, but a phase synchronization between these oscillators in such a way that the individuality of the photons is affected and somehow marked by this original systematic community. Finally, let's note that the light originating from a star can still give rise to a phenomenon of interference, as if the source were actually that of an extremely small real diameter. It nevertheless seems impossible to consider a star as a single oscillator, even if it presents itself with an apparent diameter smaller than any assignable magnitude. The extreme smallness of this apparent diameter cannot in principle change the phase rapport of the different photons picked up by the interferometer. Photons that originate from parts quite distant from one another relative to wavelength on the star that is taken as their source can be picked up by this interferometer. Then where does this synchronization come from? It no doubt comes from the apparatus in which the interferences are produced, but the latter is not itself a veritable source. Or instead, it is necessary to suppose that each photon is divided into two quantities of energy that would be like semi-photons, and that each half of the photon would manage to interfere with the other half on the screen in which the phenomenon is produced. This supposition hardly appears acceptable precisely due to the individual nature of the photon. For all these reasons, it seems that we cannot bestow physical individuality upon the photon in the sense of a material corpuscle. The photon's individuality would merely be proportionate to its frequency, 
i.e. to the quantity of energy H nu that it transports without this individuality ever being able to be complete, since it would then require this frequency to be infinite and no oscillator can produce an infinite frequency. A photon would have an infinite, a photon that would have an infinite frequency could be assimilated to a veritable particle of matter. We should still note that there perhaps exists a threshold beyond which it could be said that the photon's frequency corresponds to a, a veritable individuality. This frequency would be that for which the photon's energy is or would be equal to the energy of a material particle whose transformation into energy would precisely give the quantity of energy that would be the energy of this very high frequency photon. This photon would then be functionally equivalent to a piece of matter. Yeah, Angus, I think you're right that um, the the core of the um, of this passage is um, the idea or the the thesis that um, we can't uh, grant individuality, physical individuality, to the photon um, to the same degree as we can um, a material corpuscle like an electron or uh, a proton, and so on. So we we can only um, we can only regard photons as, photons as having a degree of um, of individuation or individuality, um, uh, which is relative to their frequency, um, and then we we would conceive um, true physical individuality as the the limit um, of a, an infinite frequency, which of course is not physically possible. But yeah, so this is. Uh, in a sense, the the sort of culmination of this whole part of the book, because he's he's um, introduced this question earlier of whether we can regard a photon as a physical individual, um, and uh, so now he's finally answering in the negative. Um, um, so photons are not physical individuals. So some of the the uh, arguments that he introduces here have to do with um, interference uh, experiments. So. The interference in the, a double slit experiment um, is when you have a, a light source that shines through the two slits um, uh, in, a, in a screen and then um, uh, appears on the, the back wall of the um, experimental apparatus. Uh, you, there's a, a set of dark bands that appear um, where the, the light coming from the two slits um, interferes with uh, with each other so that you get these dark bands um uh and so he in this um long paragraph what he introduces is the the question of um what happens when you have two different sources of light uh, in theory or um a priori you 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 would expect that the interference phenomena would only be produced you'd only see these dark bands if the light waves um are synchronized with the, if the the uh, light emitted from the two sources, uh, the waves are synchronized, so they, they have the same frequency and the same phase. So if you if you shine uh, um, a light through one slit and another light through the other slit, um, they should only produce um, interference bands uh, under the rare circumstance when the the light uh, emitted from each source is synchronized. Um, but that's not what you find in uh, uh, empirical um, experimentation. Uh, so you can you can use a, a source, um, a light source that has uh, a surface of, of several centimeters, um, and so it, it has you know tens of thousands or millions of, of uh, individual particles that are emitting photons. Um, 
And, and so in theory or a priori, you would expect that their distribution of the, the phase would be um, basically random. Um, so uh, there would be no synchronization, but uh, uh, at the same time, we, we find that um, we still get these interference phenomena, even using light sources like that, that have uh, a surface of, of several, a surface diameter of uh, several centimeters. Um, and uh, he even points out, so he points out we even uh, can produce interference uh, um, using light from a, a distant star. Um, so the, the star appears as a, a point source um, in the sky and you can use that light to, to produce interference phenomena. But of course, um, at, the, at the source itself, the, the, the star is um, you know, millions of kilometers in diameter. Uh, it's a, a huge entity relative to the, the uh, wavelength of the light that's emitted. Um, uh, and so we would again expect that uh, the the phase of the uh, of the the light would be um, distributed at random, and so we would expect that it wouldn't produce this interference phenomenon, but in fact it does. Um, and so um, so Simon Don he doesn't really um, explain how this. Uh, effect should be understood as, as coming about, um, but he, he raises a series of questions and suggests that, um, he suggests that um, it's the experimental apparatus itself that produces the, something like the, the synchronization or the, um, the uh, apparent synchronization. So the uh, interference effect is a result, a result of the, um, of the experimental apparatus, um, rather than some some sort of synchronization of the sources, um, and uh, um, so for this reason, we can't really um, consider the photon to be a, a physical individual. Um, we have to understand the photon's individuality as as relative to uh, a system of interaction. Um, rather than as, as something that is um, sort of inherently uh, self-sustaining. So uh, maybe I missed some parts, but then in terms of photon, then you think like that is not the um, some inherent like latent kind of pre-individuality, but the uh, some kind of kind of external factor. Which influences transformation, possible transformation, or something like that. Or you think like that has to do with some kind of that idea of the seed or the crystal of the crystallization or something like that. I'm trying to understand like this part, like just like a, by by uh, keeping thinking of um, the part like um, pretty individually like. Uh, Kind of like a those things like um keep like interaction with the external factors uh surroundings or or environments whatever so what I'm thinking regarding photon and the oscillator and also i'm I'm wondering like what's the exactly like oscillators are and then 
what kind of energy? I mean, what where energy oscillators to movement comes from? Something like that. Maybe it sounds really basic and ignorant. Sorry about that. But if you have any possible answers, it would be very helpful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't know if I can answer all of those questions. Um, but uh, um, so the, the idea, so an oscillator is just a, um, a source of, uh, of um, well, in this case, a source of electromagnetic radiation. So um, electromagnetic radiation has a wave form, uh, which is um, uh, um, produced by um, an oscillator. So something that has a, some sort of alternation. Um, you, can, you can picture it as like a, an up and down movement or a rotation or something like that. Um, so it has a, um, a periodic uh, uh, change, which is propagated through the electromagnetic field um, in the form of a wave. Um, and so um, the the uh, so the reason why we want to consider um, um, light sources as as oscillators uh, is because um, because there's uh, uh, so the the light wave has the same periodic structure. It's um, it, it has uh, like a in the when you consider light as a wave, you you can picture it as um, uh, you know, similar to a wave in water, um, it, it has a, a crest and a, a, a trough. Um, um, so that, that analogy is not 100% accurate because um, light waves are, are transversal waves, not longitudinal waves. But um, uh, uh, in general, the idea is that an, an oscillator is something that has a, a periodic change. Um, it can be a rotation or um, uh, an increase and decrease uh, in some sort of uh, physical quantity, uh, and then that that periodic structure or that periodic change is transmitted or or propagated through um, the, through electromagnetic waves. And and so the question here that that Simon Don is bringing up is um, whether we should regard those uh, um, oscillators as having um, some sort of real relation to the the sort to the the um, target or the the entity that is illuminated by this electromagnetic radiation. That's a little bit complicated. The the argument that he sets out, and and he also um, sort of doesn't fill in all the the details of the argument. He he gives some parts as a as questions, um, but um, the idea is that. Uh, because we can produce these interference phenomena, so these dark bands um, on the wall, um, we can produce them using uh, light sources that couldn't possibly be synchronized uh, with each other in terms of frequency and phase. Um, like for instance, the, the light from uh, a distant star. Um, so because we can produce these uh, um, interference phenomena in these circumstances, um, it shows that the the interference phenomena are not um, uh, that we shouldn't understand the interference phenomena as being um, uh, as having to do with a real relation with the source, um, and instead we should understand them as uh, being produced through uh, by means of the instrumental apparatus in some way. He doesn't really specify what that would look like, but. Um, 
it's the so it's the the two slits or the the setup of the experiment is what produces um, the interference uh, rather than um, uh, a real relation with the source. Um, and so because of this, we, we shouldn't um, we shouldn't think of the photon as being a, a real physical individual, um, but uh, we should regard um, photons as having um, as having some sort of um, relative individuality, um, so proportionate to the frequency of the the light beam uh, or the electromagnetic radiation. Um, Rather than um, rather than having a, an intrinsic individuality. Yeah, thank thank you. So actually, like my kind of like a continuing question had to do with has to do with some kind of uh, the origin of energy. Like it might be to do with some kind of agency. Like I'm not sure. Like if like the discussion agency like uh, is proper here but the thing is that what Simone is trying to is like to explain in terms of physics he's trying to like uh, what happens is what happens things like that or there could be some some voluntary energy agent agency of an individual like that kind of thing exists or something just happens, like dies of through. Like in nature, there is something we can't, as a human being, like a handle. So Simone is just trying to make us understood in terms of physics. Is is that is that like kind of just compl complicated like explanations? He's just trying to explanation what what is called like a phenomenon, like uh, in terms of individuation, like in terms of physics. Is it the right way to understand this, Paul? Yeah, I think if I understand correctly, I think um, I think that's right. So, uh, or yeah, how I would put it is that um, he wants to um, develop ontological concepts or, or more generally philosophical concepts that are adequate to um, some of the results of. Uh, uh, empirical sciences um, and and so he wants to have um, a mode of thinking that is capable of thinking physical reality um, uh, rather than being sort of um, um, excluded from physical reality or or um, being only able to think uh, uh, measurements or or appearances or something like that. Um, so he wants to have a, a real access to physical reality, but uh, in order to do that, we have to um, we have to draw from uh, empirical sciences uh, and and make our concepts adequate to those sciences, rather than uh, sort of imposing um, presuppositions on uh, those sciences. I'm not sure if that answers exactly your your question, but that, that's sort of how I see what um, what Simon Don is doing here. Thank you, thank you. Like it, it's enough, like to make think twice, and then if I have more more questions, I will do it later. Thank you so much. Yeah, um, feel free to to ask questions as we go along. Um, uh, so I think we can um, go on to the next section or subsection, I should say. Um, and this one 
is a little less uh, physics intensive. Um, it's more ontology um, uh, related, I guess you could say. Um, so if someone else would like to read, you can take it away. Four, topology, chronology, and order of magnitude of physical individuation. Furthermore, if we contemplate microphysical reality directly, an interpretation of individuation starting from the phenomena of structural change would aim to consider becoming as essentially linked to the operations of individuation that are carried out in successive transformations. Determinism would remain applicable as a borderline case when the system is considered when the system considered is not the theater of any individuation, i.e. when no exchange takes place between energy and structure, which would modify the system's structures, thus leaving it topologically identical to what it was in its previous states. On the contrary, indeterminism would seem like a borderline case when a complete structural change manifests in a system with the transition from one order of magnitude to another. This is the case, for example, of the modifications brought to a system by the fission of an atomic nucleus. Intranuclear energies, which up to that point belong to the internal system of this nucleus, are unleashed by fission and can act as a gamma photon or a neutron on the bodies that belong to a system situated on a scale larger than that of the atomic nucleus. Nothing in a macroscopic system allows us to predict at which moment of macroscopic time there will be efficient unleashing an energy that will nevertheless be effective on the macroscopic level. Indeterminism is not merely linked to measurement. It also stems from the fact that physical reality involves topologically interlocking scales of magnitude, each of which has their own becoming and their own particular chronology. Indeterminism would exist in a pure state if there were no correlation between the topology and the chronology of physical systems. This absence of correlation is never absolutely complete. This can only be said abstractly of an absolute indeterminism, realizable by a complete internal resonance, or of an absolute determinism, realizable by a complete independence between chronology and topology. The general case is that of a certain level of correlation between a system's chronology and topology, a level which is moreover variable due to the vicissitudes of its own becoming. A system reacts on itself not only in the sense of the principle of entropy through the general law of its internal energetic transformations, but also by modifying its own structure through time. The becoming of a system is the manner in which it individuates, i.e. essentially the manner in which it is conditioned according to the different structures and successive operations through which it operates within itself and phase shifts relative to its initial state. Determinism and indeterminism are merely borderline cases because there is a becoming of systems. This becoming is the becoming of their individuation. There is a reactivity of systems with respect to themselves. The evolution of a system would be determined if there were no internal resonance of the system, i.e. no exchange between the different scales that it encompasses. Uh, no quantum structural change would be possible, and we, would, we could know the becoming of the system in a theory of the continuous or according to the law of large numbers, as thermodynamics does. Pure indeterminism would correspond to such an elevated internal resonance that any modification occurring on a determined scale would immediately reverberate throughout all levels as a structural change. In fact, the general case is that of quantum thresholds of resonance. In order for a modification produced on one of the levels to reach the other levels, it must be above a certain value. Internal resonance only develops discontinuously and with a certain delay from one scale to another. The individuated physical being is not totally simultaneous relative to itself. Its topology and chronology are separated by a certain gap that is variable according to the becoming of the individuated whole. Substance would be a physical individual, uh, totally resonant with respect to itself, and consequently totally identical to itself, perfectly coherent with itself and singular. The physical being must be considered, on the contrary, as more than unity and more than identity, rich in potentials. 
The individual is undergoing individuation based on pre-individual, a pre-individual reality that sustains it. The perfect individual, totally individuated, substantial, deprived, and emptied of its potentials, is an abstraction. The individual is undergoing ontogenetic becoming. It has, with respect to itself, a relative coherence, a relative unity, and a relative identity. The physical individual must be thought as a chronotopological whole, whose complex becoming involves successive crises of individuation. The being's becomings, becoming consists in this non-coincidence of chrono- chronology and topology. The individuation of a physical ensemble would then be constituted by the interlinking of the successive regimes of this ensemble. So we have here the reintroduction of the notion of orders of magnitude, which um, we saw uh, a fair bit in the earlier um, chapter on uh, crystallization and and so on, um, but uh, has not really played a big role in um, this notion of orders of magnitude uh, we saw earlier, and then it, it didn't really play a big role in the rest of this chapter, but then now he's bringing it back in. So the example that he uses now in this case is um, uh, nuclear fission. Um, so you have a in in fission you have a a, a transition from uh, one state in which the nuclear energy, the um, intranuclear energy, is uh, sort of bound up within um, the microscopic scale, uh, and and then you then you have a transition to a state in which that energy is released at a, a macroscopic scale. And so again, this is a, a difference of order of magnitude, um, and and he characterizes um, the difference between determinism and indeterminism as uh, sort of two limit states with respect to um, the degree of um, uh, resonance uh, is the term he uses, but um, you could say correlation uh, between the the orders of magnitude within an entity. Pure determinism would be um, a, a state of a, an entity in which um, there were no, uh, or to put it another way, the in which the orders of magnitude would be perfectly correlated with each other. So um, there would be nothing like um, this uh, um, sudden transition, uh, like nuclear fission, um, where um, a microscopic uh, energy is released at a macroscopic scale. Um, uh, everything would be... Um, uh, determined uh, in the sense that um, there would there would be no um, unpredictable uh, events uh, like um, nuclear fission, and then the other limit is pure indeterminism, which would be um, uh, a state where um, where there would be uh, no correlation between the different orders of magnitude. So it would be as if nuclear fission type phenomena were the only phenomena that existed. Uh, everything would be um, happening just sort of at random. Um, uh, but then in reality, um, what we find is not either of these two limit conditions, but rather a, a mixed condition where you have um, a degree, uh, a relative uh, um, correlation between um, uh as he puts it, between the chronology and the topology of the system, so between the the, the evolution of the system through time and the structure of the system uh, in terms of orders of magnitude. Um, so there, there's some degree of correlation between the different orders of magnitude, um, but they, they're not purely um, 
they're not uh, absolutely correlated with each other or completely correlated with each other. Um, and so you get um, threshold effects uh, um, like in, in the case of nuclear fission where um, uh, you have a, um, if the, a certain quantity uh, is higher than a certain threshold, then you end up with um, uh, um, a transition, uh, a discrete transition in, in state of another um, property. Uh, and, um, and so this is what, this is uh, the general situation with uh, physical individuation. So most physical individuals or, or physical individuals in general have only this relative um, uh, correlation with themselves or, or resonance, uh, internal resonance with themselves uh, rather than a, an absolute um, uh, correlation with themselves, which is what uh, a substance would have. So it seems like he's associating the, the idea of chronology here with the, the idea of these different thresholds between, uh, between different phases of individuation. Um, is that right? Um, I think I think the chronology here is. Um, I was going to say no, but I think actually you might be right. So the the chronology is no. I'm not sure. <laughs> um, I, the way I understood it at first is that the chronology had to do with the um, evolution of the system through time. Um, so over time, the system has a, a set of states um, which uh, varies with time. And then the topology would refer to the the structure of the system in terms of the orders of magnitude. But I'm not actually sure now if that's the correct interpretation. Yeah, that it. was my question because he actually he uses the non-coincidence of chronology and topology when he's at the end of the paragraph when he's saying the physical individual must be thought of as a chronotopological whole, blah blah blah. Um, the beings becoming consistent this non-coincidence chronology and topology. But interestingly, that's also how he describes uh, absolute determinism, if I'm not mistaken, above when he's saying, uh, sorry, if I can find it, uh, at the top of 159, uh, absolute determinism realizable by complete independence between chronology and topology. So I, I don't know if there's a way in which uh, it's sort of like once, is it that once be, in terms of them both being limit states, you know, determinism and indeterminism being too borderline cases within the evolution of a system i suppose i'm not sure like is is it that that is he identifying the becoming with a kind of determinism in the sense of what we've talked about before not not a determinism in the classical sense but of like you know the once uh, a seed or a singularity begins like some process uh, is activated and it begins some process of individuation it's it's happening in a direction or there's a directionality to it but that, that basically what I took as the non-coincidence thing was that uh, in order for that to happen, you know, th there's the whole thing from way at the beginning of the book, another text where he talks about, the, you know, the, in pre-individual reality, there's, it's like sort of pre-chronological, it's pre-notion, uh, a traditional notion of time. And that, you know, like we've talked with all these different examples of things all of a sudden unfolding all at once, you know, once the potentials are activated and individual reality starts to get made or starts becoming, I guess. Like, I, I guess I'm mixing a bunch of these things, but the way I thought of it in my head was the reason there's a non-coincidence of chronology and topology is because 
from the beginning, there's all there's a topology. Like for example, in the back in the example of the crystal with the supersaturated liquid, and then the chronology sort of uh, it, it it doesn't it's not coincident with the topology itself because then you would just have kind of a classical notion of being or substance, right? So once once it's introduced, it's almost like after words or in a second step if that makes sense or after the phase shift then you can start to have becoming i don't know if any of that makes sense to be honest this is just where i was thinking actually i had a similar question it's like um uh, in terms of uh spatial temporally like because like in when i read like another book about simon Dong, like i uh, remember that like the individual process like psyche and the collective process it was um kind of defined as a processual like so the part that like i'm i'm wondering also is like is it like a mixture of the idea of a co- coexistence and the processual process all together and then what i uh focused on here is like a chronology i mean chronos like i don't know why like i just extended my idea to the uh chronos versus the iron and simongdong's idea like as a as a scientist Maybe uh, he, uh, in a way, like is, was stuck to some kind of linear, linear process of time and space, something like that. It's all kind of wondering too. Um, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll answer that that last point first. Um, so there's a distinction between between Chronos and and Ion that uh, that Deleuze makes in in Logic of Sense, um, where he he um, yeah, so he he uh, ar- argues for these two distinct orders of time um um i would have to admit that i don't remember in a lot of detail what the um what the distinction between those two orders of time is uh, if i remember correctly ion has to do with the event and, and then chronos is um um something like the um constituted individual um time um I think Simon Don doesn't doesn't really have um, a notion of the event in the same way that Deleuze does. Um, I, I think there there's no um, there's no uh, yeah there, there's no event concept in Simon Don, um, and so there would be no um, Ion uh, concept of time uh, in strictly speaking. Um, but I think um, I think. Uh, Simonon does have this distinction between time and becoming, uh, because uh, as we saw in the introduction, he he brings up the idea, or, or he, he asserts uh, in the introduction. Um, we don't really see the the argument for it there, but he asserts that um, time itself is something that um, that has become. Uh, time is a result of a process of becoming. And and so it's that becoming uh, can't be strictly identified with time. Uh, it's something that uh, that is um, outside time in some sense, or or is prior to time in a, a logical sense. So I, I don't think I don't think we could say that Simon Don has a, a strictly linear um, account of time because he wants to account for uh, the genesis of time or a becoming of time. Um, and so that that notion of becoming is. Um, more fundamental than than uh, time as a, a linear sequence of moments or something like that. Uh, on the the other point that uh, that Alyosha brought up, I think 
so that yeah, there's that that bit right towards the end of the paragraph where he says the being's becoming consists in this non-coincidence of chronology and topology. And then we can connect this or or compare this with uh, what he says uh, a page earlier on 159, where he says indeterminism would exist in a pure state if there were no correlation between the topology and the chronology of physical systems. My understanding here is that the second one, the uh, the the one on 160, the second the statement on 160, when he says non-coincidence of chronology and topology, he's talking about the relative non-coincidence. So the the relative coherence, relative unity, relative identity, um, the partial correlation between orders of magnitude that make up an individual. And then, and so this, we have to distinguish this non-coincidence or this relative uh, coincidence with, uh, from the, um, the complete absence, uh, the no correlation between topology and chronology, which is what would characterize uh, indeterminism. That's that's how I understand the the passage, but it um, it, it could be um, stated a little more clearly, I, I think. But um, yeah, I think that's a, a way to make sense of of what he what he's talking about. At least, no, I think it's I think it's uh, determinism is is that determinism is the complete internal resonance, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, that's weird. Let me just take a look at the French uh, to see if, if that's what he says there. See, that's kind of what I was getting at, is that I think you're, you're probably you're right that something in the way I explained it doesn't make sense. But the thing that was is confusing there is saying an indeterm- absolute indeterminism realizable by a complete internal resonance versus absolute determinism realizable by complete independence between chronology and topology so i may take your point if it makes if i if it bears out that maybe non-coincidence is not quite the same as in total independence although it seems to me like that's they're both it's like saying perpendicular that those are two different ways of saying that but yeah the the, the internal resonance thing because that seems to call back to even earlier in the text as well um with other example the more physical examples that we talked about with the the brick and other things like that. So I'm, I'm trying to reconcile those things, I guess. Yeah, I'm just trying to look quickly at the French to see whether it, uh, it sort of disambiguates this because uh, uh, it looks like the the English text, the one that you uh, posted in the chat there, has it backwards, um, as far as I understand it. But I have to check if that's correct. Um, yeah, so it looks like the French text actually does have the same as what the English does. Um, yeah, so this absence of correlation is never absolutely complete. It is only abstractly that we can speak of uh, an, an absolute indeterminism realizable by a complete internal resonance or of a, an absolute determinism realizable by a complete independence between chronology and pathology. Yeah, that sounds like uh, sounds like he's put it backwards there. I wonder if that could just be a mistake on his part, uh, or it could be that I'm misunderstanding what um, what the connection is between the determinism and internal resonance. Yeah, that that does seem backwards. Yeah, that's uh, interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it, it it looks like he he wrote it backwards there. So it, it, I think. You know, my my hypothesis would be that um, uh, we should understand uh, absolute indeterminism as um, a complete independence between chronology and topology, and 
um, absolute determinism as a, a, in, a complete internal resonance rather than the way that it's written uh, in the text. Um, but yeah, that's that would be a um, that would be like a, a correction of the text, um, so intervening in the text itself rather than uh, just interpretation. Wait, so just to clarify, um, the idea is that indeterminism has no internal resonance and determinism has total internal resonance? Yeah, that's right. That's that's how I understand it, um, which requires a, a, a amending the text in, in that one passage. Can I just bring up an, an example? I know we have to move on, but from page 56, uh, sorry, from page 28, this is where I had thought of with back with the clay example. Um, and uh, I'm just looking here. He says, each point has as many chances as all the others. The matter about to take form is in a state of complete internal resonance. What occurs at one point reverberates within all the others. The becoming of each molecule reverberates within all the others at all points and in all directions. The matter's elements are neither isolated from one another nor heterogeneous relative to one another. All heterogeneity is a condition of the non-transmission of forces and therefore a condition of internal uh, non-resonance. The plasticity of the clay is its capacity to be in a state of internal resonance as soon as it is subjected to a pressure in an enclosure. The mold as a limit is that through which the state of an internal resonance is provoked. But the mold is not that through which the internal resonance is realized. It's what uh, uniformly transmits in all directions the pressures and displacements from the uh, within the malleable clay. Um, I, I don't know if it completely clarifies, but that is the aspect that I feel like, because I remember getting caught up on this, because to me internal resonance seems to indicate a kind of heterogeneity just in, intuitively. That's what you would think. You need like a, a kind of open system with a lot of different elements to allow something to happen. But there's, I, I, again, I don't know if this helps in some way, but there, to me it always seemed like what he was trying to say is in the example of the, he's saying heterogeneity is a condition of non-transmission of forces. Uh, maybe it means different orders of magnitude, I'm not sure. But th there is a way in which, in order for internal resonance to occur, there has to be a kind of, again, a topological homogeneity to the, to at least that version of the system state or whatever, in order for things to be transmitted across it. So I think in that case, counterintuitively, you could maybe read indeterminism as, as precisely that, that like things can go in any direction precisely because there's like a surface or a, a con continuity to it uh, rather than a discontinuity. And that it's precisely when there's discontinuity, like in the case of corpuscles and other things, like we've even seen with the probability experiments and all these things that we've been talking about, that you start to get into the area of determinism because you're starting to sort of link so-called separate events uh, through a, a chain of causality or something. Again, I don't, I don't know if this is too tangential, but I, I, maybe we should put a pin in it and come back to it because it does seem pretty important to me to understanding what he's saying. Yeah, I have to go back and, and look at that passage again. Um, when, he, when he brings up the idea of homogeneity, he's talking about uh, how the clay has to be homogeneous, like it can't contain any um, little pebbles or something like that. Um, um, in order to transmit the forces uh, in a uniform manner across itself. Um, 
and and produce a, a brick um, that that won't have any cracks or or flaws in it, and and so that and that's what he he characterizes as uh, the state of internal resonance is is that um, capacity to transmit the forces um, uniformly, uh, and I would I would tend to I would tend to align that with the determinism side. Uh, um, of the opposition that he makes here um, in the part that we're reading, yeah, I think I think it it would be worth um, going into that more more closely uh, and and trying to see what the relationship is between his uh, his use of the term resonance um, uh, in this passage and and in the previous one that you brought up. Um, but yeah, so I think we can go on to the next bit um, and and sort of keep this question. Uh, in mind for for the future. Um, let's see. Yeah, we have some time still. Um, so I can read the next bit, uh, page or so. Uh, so we're at the first full paragraph on 160. Such a conception would therefore consider energetic regime regimes and structural states as convertible with one another through an ensemble's becoming. Due to the notion of orders of magnitude and the notion of thresholds and exchanges, it would assert that the individuation that individuation exists between the pure continuous and the pure discontinuous. The notion of thresholds and of quantum exchange is indeed a mediation between the pure continuous and the pure discontinuous. It would bring in the notion of information as a fundamental characteristic of individuation, conceived according to dimen dimensions that are both chronological and topological. We could then speak of a more or less elevated level of individuation. An ensemble would possess a more elevated level of individuation in proportion to the greater amount of pre-individual reality it would envelop and compatibilize in its chronological and topological systematics, or in proportion to the difference between orders of magnitude. Such a hypothesis supposes that there is no elementary individual, no first individual anterior to every genesis. There is individuation in an ensemble. The first reality is pre-individual and is richer than the individual understood as the result of individuation. The pre-individual is the source of chron chronological and topological dimensionality. The oppositions between continuous and discontinuous particle and energy would thus express not so much the complementary aspects of the real as the dimensions that emerge in the real when it becomes individuated. Complementarity on the level of individuated reality would be the translation of the fact that individuation appears on the one hand as ontogenesis and on the other hand as an operation of a pre-individual reality that not only produces the individual the model of a substance, but also produces the energy or the field associated with the individual. Only the associated field-individual pairing accounts for the level of pre-individual reality. This supposition of the first pre-individual nature of reality is moreover what allows us to consider the physical individual veritably as an ensemble. The individual corresponds to a certain dimensionality of the real, i.e. to an associated topology and chronology. The individual is an edifice in its most current form, i.e. in the form in which it appears to us, whether crystal or molecule. As such, it is not an absolute, but a reality that corresponds to a certain state of generally metastable equilibrium and is founded on a regime of exchanges between the different orders of magnitude that can be modified either by internal becoming or by an external event that brings a certain new condition to the internal regime. For example, an energetic condition when the neutron originating from the fission of a nucleus provokes the fission of another nucleus. Thus, there is a certain consistency of the individual, but not an absolute antitypy, an impenetrability in a substantial sense. 
the consistency of the individual edifice is still founded on quantum conditions. It depends on thresholds. So um, individuation has to be understood in relative terms. It's it's not uh, an absolute all or nothing um, in the sense that there would be some some individuals and then other entities that are not individuals um, in a, a strict uh, sense. We have instead uh, degrees of individuation. Um, and so a system is individuated um, to the extent that it, um, um, to the extent that it incorporates um, more of the pre-individual. Um, so we have uh, this pre-individual reality that undergoes a, a phase shift um, or a, a, a dephasing um, and, uh, and, and into um, separate orders of magnitude. And then we have um, the individuation process that uh, um, sort of recaptures part of that pre-individual reality. Um, but uh, the individual is always um, is always accompanied by um, something non-individuated, uh, and so it's only the total system, including both the individual and the the non-individual field, um, that um, that corresponds to the initial pre-individuated state. Um, and then there's a, a question in the chat about whether, uh, or a comment, I guess, um, about whether. Um, something of the meaning of individual uh, doesn't get lost as soon as we begin to speak of relative individuation. Um, yeah, that's a, um, that's a good um, suggestion or, or um, comment to make, but I, I think the, um, what Simon Don was trying to do is um, to transform the concept of individual uh, in such a way that it uh, that it has a greater capacity to um, uh, to to think physical reality. Um, so we want to, um, I guess, like we, we should expect that the notion of individual individuation um, that Simon Don is using will be different than our uh, sort of everyday notion of, of individuation, um, but. Uh, based on the, the physical um, phenomena that he's been discussing in this chapter uh, and then throughout this part of the book, um, he wants to make the case, make the case that, um, <clears throat> that this is uh, a superior concept of individuation um, compared to the, the, the sort of standard or, or everyday concept of an individual. Well, I, another thought I had, again, I don't, this is correct or not, but I just really like that the second to last paragraph we read, where he says the, um, where is it? Uh, the oppositions between continuous and discontinuous, etc., would express not so much the complementary aspects of the real as the dimensions that emerge in the real when it becomes individuated. Complementarity on the level of individuated reality would be the translation of the fact that individuation appears on the one hand as in ontogenesis, and on the other hand, as an operation of pre-individual reality. And I just thought that was interesting because I think, you know, I, at least for myself, and I'm very behind, so I apologize, but it's very easy to slip into the kind of, if somebody asks you for a summary of Simon Don, to just kind of give this general account of, oh, you know, there's pre-individual reality, and then there's ontogenesis, and then everybody goes home happy. <laughs> uh, at least that's how I've tried to explain it. 
And uh, there's something about what he's saying here, which isn't necessarily new, but I just like that he's saying it's it's not simply that these are sort of like different aspects of the real, but they're, they're actually sort of like uh, like he, it's almost like in if you if you look at everything through the lens of ontogenesis, that's that's helpful, and it works and obviously has a relationship with pre-individual reality. But he's but he seems to be implying that if you're looking at it through the lens of ontogenesis it's not exactly completely possible to then place yourself within the pre-individual reality and if you do that the latter then it's hard to put place yourself in the former precisely because of the i think what i was saying earlier of like in the in the pre-individual reality it's like the field of potentials before individuation has happened and ontogenesis is seemingly during or after or you know when the process of individuation occurring and yeah, I don't know. It's not like I I don't have a specific uh, where direction I'm going with this. I just thought it was interesting because I I would have thought commonsensically that the first part is sort of the way I would explain it is oh these are different aspects of the real, but it's like he's saying that's not enough. Uh, I guess to just look at it that way that yeah I, again sorry for not having a better point, but I just thought that was very interesting. The the two aspects or the two sides of. Um, that are the, the the physical individual and the fields um, or the the non-individuated portion of reality that is associated with it. Um, they they always um, uh, come together. Um, you can't um, you can't isolate one from the other. Um, so um, that's uh, maybe a secondary sense in which the individuation is relative. Uh, so it, it's it's relative in the first sense in in that um, it's never complete individuation or, or absolute individuation. Uh, and then a second sense is that it's always relative to uh, individuation of uh, an individual is always relative to the, the non-individual that surrounds it um, in, in that, uh, that field. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, we can understand that as a, a second sense in which uh, individuation is relative. Um, I'm just looking at the time and the amount we have left, and I don't think uh, um, we would we would have to rush to uh, to finish the the um, the subsection and the the part of the book as a whole. So um, I would suggest we can end a little bit early today and uh, keep the rest of the uh, the. Um, the last bit of this subsection for next time, um, but uh, if there are any objections, um, I'm I'm open to alternatives. Uh, so yeah, let's let's end here for today, and we'll pick up um, at the top of 161. Uh, next time, we'll finish out the the first part of the book. So we're like I don't know a third of the way through, maybe um, or maybe closer to a quarter. I'm not sure exactly, but. We're through the first part of the book next time, so that will be our transition into um, the world of living individuation, uh, vital individuation.